0: back it's episode nine so we are almost in double digits Woo! yay
1: we made it we made it <laughs> <laughs> thank you to our loyal listeners aka my friend olivia and my dad <laughs>
0: there's others there's others
2: no, there's others there are definitely others
1: no thank you for everyone who started joining and listening uh we're really encouraged
2: Yeah, and thank you for those of us who reach out afterwards with your thoughts and, you know, things that you enjoyed. Um, I will say Sarb's hello, hello, hello has become quite the viral sensation.
1: It's how I say hello now. (laughs) How's it going, guys? What's happening?
0: I'm a little sleepy because I was up till one in the night playing FIFA.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Sarb, please tell us, please tell us more about your FIFA.
0: So I started out as a player. And then I moved on to becoming a manager. So now I'm managing Nottingham Forest. (laughs) And then I got an offer to manage the US national team.
2: Okay, I have to interrupt. Yesterday, Sarb was playing FIFA and I walked into the room and the video game is him having dinner, like this character having dinner with two other people. And I was like, how is this playing a video game? He's like, I'm
1: negotiating. (laughs) I was like, what the fuck? Wow, that's intense.
0: Yeah, you have to, so if you want a player to join your team, you have to go to the negotiating table. You have to say, okay, this is how much salary I'll give you. This is a signing bonus.
2: Dude, what Thanks happened to, to like, team. Sonic the Hedgehog, where you just, like, blasted through shit?
1: I have a question. If you get good at this video game, uh, do you also get better at soccer in real life? <laughs> Absolutely not.
0: Yes. The answer is <laughs> does yes. It
1: imp- does it improve skills? Yes. All around. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say, if you get good at this video game, can you make some money?
2: And I was like, I don't think so.
0: Actually, you can. If you get really good, some of those tournaments, the prize money is like five hundred thousand dollars. But I'm never gonna get that good.
1: You could also play, uh, play it on Twitch live, right?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's like a. Like it's basically YouTube for video games. And yeah. I love how we're explaining Twitch. It's like a multi-billion dollar... Guys, revenue. I don't even
1: know what it is. <laughs> people just play games live. Like, it's like it's like if people watched us recording this podcast right now. And we're like, wow, that's fascinating.
2: <laughs> Guys, please reach out if you'd like to watch us do this live in our pajamas.
1: So, uh, speaking of sports... <laughs> What do you uh of? You want to start? Start us out today?
0: Yeah, I do. And but uh, before that, I want to acknowledge a friend actually reached out and said, "Oh yeah, I loved our ambassador episode. We did call it the Ambi growing up. So I was in the wrong. <laughs> the Ambi is apparently a nickname.
1: The Ambi is the thing. The Ambi is the thing. It was like clearly in cooler circles than any of us were running it because we were just calling it like the God. It was probably for people who had multiple cars and then they're just like, oh, yeah, let's take out the Ambi today.
0: Okay, so shall we move on to what I want to talk about today?
1: Yeah, get us started.
0: Yeah, so going from FIFA to cricket, and I know cricket is a British sport, but if they can co-opt tea from China through India to the Caribbean, I'm going to co-opt cricket as a desi thing. So my desi thing for today is that the first ever international cricket match ever played in this world was actually between USA and Canada. <laughs> Two countries who
2: famously don't play cricket right now. When When is this?
0: So this is actually in 1844. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense, right? This is just after... Uh, this is just after the American independence. Well, it's like 100 years, but still, it's like fairly recent. It's when the British colonists are still around in america so it kind of makes sense that there was cricket in america at this time apparently the match happened in new york at saint george's club i believe uh so apparently this match was attended by ten thousand people which is actually a pretty big it's like a college football level crowd right
1: yeah that's huge
0: so i mean america has a history of cricket and uh, i went down the rabbit hole of looking at Cricket in America? Apparently, John Adams made a reference uh, to cricket in, his, in the Independence Hall debates. So uh, John Adams apparently was against calling the leader of the country the president. And he said fire brigades and cricket clubs have precedents. Uh, he, he was against calling the uh, leader of the nation president. So he didn't want that.
2: John Adams from Massachusetts. Go Red Sox. <laughs>
0: Well, interesting you say that because apparently there used also used to be a Longwood Cricket Club.
2: So when I was researching yesterday, somebody called Philadelphia the Mecca of cricket in America. Really? Yeah, Mecca of Philly? Like that was. So, and it's primarily due to the influx of Lancashire and Yorkshire hosiery and mill workers who came from Britain in the 1840s. So they brought the game with them, and they came here, and they were like, "What do you mean you don't play cricket?" and it was, like, huge. There were, like, 120 clubs in Philly. 120
1: clubs? In Philly. Like, that's crazy.
0: <laughs> they also have, uh, in Philadelphia, uh, they have, now it's a university library. It's, I think, C. Christopher Morris Cricket Library, which has archives about, archives about information and, like, a lot of photos, old photos, and old collections of cricket in America.
3: And
2: then it, like, all peters out around the First World War, unfortunately. But, like... It's really thriving. And it was really interesting to me, kind of on a broader scale, like America's compared to India has numerous sports that are really popular, right? Like in India, it's just cricket that gets most of the money and the attention and people have issues with that or whatever. But in America, a country where like football, baseball, basketball, hockey all have like their place. It's too bad that this um, sport that had really taken a foothold that is so popular globally Died
0: out. There's a reason for that. Because so around 19, I think 1908 or 1909, the Imperial Cricket uh, Conference, which is basically this body that was responsible for promoting the sport and like developing the sport around the con- around the world. So they decided that cricket would not be played in countries that are not part of the Commonwealth or the British Empire. So obviously, by that time, oh. the United States had long kicked the British out. So that is, that is one of the reasons that is given why cricket did not take off um, in the U.S.
1: Why did they do that? <laughs> why I would you restrict a sport to only a few countries? Was it because they, like, wanted, like, England wanted to, like, uh, keep its, like, superiority or, like, uh, sports? Isn't it
0: strange? I don't exactly know. Uh, I feel like it's also to do with the history of the game, which is, like, a gentleman's game a gentleman's sport actually it's called a game not a sport so maybe they wanted it to be like let us keep the spirit of the game like we have in like they did invent it um so right. like we have so like let's keep it within the within our colonies this is a, this is a slight aside uh, of how cricket developed in india so I've, this is from ramchandra Guha's a corner of a foreign field so Even when they played in India, as when India was India and South Asia, like a larger part of the subcontinent was part of the colonies, uh, they would just play amongst themselves and the locals eventually started like observing and playing and the British immigrants, I'm going to call them immigrants there, uh, they, uh, decided, "Oh, oh yeah, there's like more competition so we can, uh, we can actually, uh, start having more fun and have more games. So... Cricket started developing uh, in India, obviously, along uh, religious lines. So there was, like, a Hindu cricket club in Bom- M- Mumbai, what was then Bombay. Uh, there was a Parsi cricket club. Um, so they, they they used to have cricket clubs like that. And um, that's how the game kind of developed in India as well.
1: But did the Britishers play with the, like, local Indian clubs?
0: They did. Uh, and... Slight, slight, so Lagan, speaking of Lagan because British versus India obviously brings up that film. Although Lagan is fictional, there is a match that happened, I believe in Pune. I think it's Bombay. That sort of mirrors, not mirrors, but like it is British versus a local club and the local club wins. Spoiler alert for Lagan. <laughs> Newspapers from across the region used to report uh, reported on this match because it was so like it was very well attended like everybody from the local crowd came to watch and like they were cheering on the uh, cheering on their home team so it was kind of the Lagan atmosphere without the like the taxation aspect of it
2: what is the Lagan atmosphere without the taxation that's the whole point Team Duna Lagan (laughs) did it happen in San Uniso Seasi?
0: (laughs) Uniso Seasi is when you were born also it's Cheasi
1: I don't know my numbers in Hindi at all what year is that what year is Lagan supposed to take place
0: I actually don't remember when Lagan actually it's, happens
1: I think it's the same time as this time where they're having this cricket match between America and Canada <laughs> it's around the same time but like
2: kind of going back to that for a second America or North America in general was like a like was kind of a part of this whole scene, right? Like the first overseas cricket tournament was also in 1859, when like, English people came over to North America for the first ever overseas tour. So like, America, the U.S. rather, and Canada really played like a big role in this overseas cricket scene that just like has died out. I'm still kind of fascinated by the fact that it died out.
0: Yeah. Uh, and also it kind of died out in Canada, too. Uh, but Canada also used to play cricket a lot. Uh, and they did uh, later in the night, like the I think the in the I believe in the 96 World Cup or 99 World Cup, Canada did make it to make it to the World Cup. And like Don Bradman, who's like the greatest batsman of all time, he's like one of the great, I don't know, uh, he would be like the Barry, no, not Barry Bonds, who's like a great baseball, all-time great baseball player.
1: Babe Ruth? Babe Ruth.
0: Babe Ruth, yeah. He's like the Babe Ruth of cricket, maybe. Or like the Maradona or whatever of cricket. Uh, he, one of his favorite cricket, places to play cricket was in Vancouver, Canada.
2: Wait, where was this guy originally from?
0: Oh, uh, Don Bradman is Australian. Oh, okay. Yeah, and another reason why cricket kind of died out was actually kind of something to do with the way the game is marketed because it's like a gentleman's game, whatever. Like it was, people wanted to, uh, the people who played it at the time wanted to restrict it to those clubs that they played, whereas baseball is a hooligans game not a hooligans game but like i i read that like in the civil war when the uh, northern soldiers went south they took their like baseball bats with them so that kind of helped with some marketing the game to a larger crowd and like spalding helped market the game further and like made it like they changed the rules a little bit and they made it easier for people to access and also it helps that baseball uh, it's played in a smaller field compared to cricket. like Cricket requires more space. The irony is that cricket became popular in India where there is less space and the U.S. has way more space to play cricket.
2: Okay, but also original cricket took like five days. So, you know, when you're... At- civil warring you don't have time for
1: like a five-day game you got to do something fast nine innings get out of there that's why it's a gentleman's game they have nothing else to do (laughs) (laughs) they have five days for test cricket
0: they have a lunch break and a tea break
1: (laughs) (laughs) their halftime tea
2: break (laughs) they're like where are the cucumber sandwiches
0: no, 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 no. Halftime is lunch break. So if you watch a test match, it begins at usually nine o'clock, wherever it's happening. Nine o'clock in the morning. Then our tea lunch is around 12, 1230. They go for lunch. They come back, play for like a couple of uh, three, four hours. Then they have a tea break and then they come back again.
1: And they also dress, prop- at least they used to. Now the uniform has changed, Yes, But it was like, you know, proper like pants and and, a, and like a polo shirt or and something. And quite a
2: jaunty vest. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Like crisp whites. Also, like now it's like quite intense, right? Like they're like athletes, like, you know, six packs and all that. But like in the 80s, the cricketers were quite roly poly, you know, like they enjoyed their like sandwiches and tea and whatever. And they were just like, I mean, they were athletes, don't get me wrong, please don't attack me. But, you know, they weren't fit.
0: No, I mean the fitness thing is at least in South Asia is like a, is a much more recent phenomenon, like in the last twenty years maybe uh, when the game started being more f- like faster, because like in the nineties, especially like I think India was hilariously bad at fielding <laughs> because you had to dive to get the ball <laughs> and like, like Indians no. were just like really bad at fielding. And if I may speak so, uh, for Pakistan, Enzaamul Haqq, Who's, there, who's a brilliant batsman, like he was their captain. Kind of not very athletic and also so bad at... So, so because you have to take runs, right? And Enjama was so bad at running. There's just a hilarious compa- compilation online of him running out his partner or like his the other person on the field because he just refused to run and the other guy ran and... <laughs> They got ran out.
1: You know, it's interesting because, actually, I, you know, um, just recently, actually, just I think 2019, um, there was, like, a lot of social media fury from Pakistani fans about how, uh, their Pakistani cricket team was like not fit enough and and like they were like mentioning like their diet and they were really like trolling their team and after that um they um decided to change the diet so like they were like no more biryani and red meat for the players um so Is that and like video where people are crying and they're like pizza they're eating pizza and burgers and they're not playing yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then, like, when they lost um, the game, like, the their, like the fans were like so heartbroken. They were like, all
3: cow biryani. like. <laughs> oh, economy struggle, kar have you have have you you and a new cricket should out the game and you say, play a game? fitness or anything here. We have made you and a lot, you a new you buy a lot, you buy a lot, you buy a lot, you sincerity, calories انہاں انہاں نو سر انہاں نو سر ہیکو ہیکو آئس کریم دے دفتر جاب لوا کے دیو انہاں نو مول زالیاں نہ سائیکلے شیر شاہ بھی سنا پیتے ہیں شیر شاہ گلاب جامن دیکھیے کرتے ہیں محبت ان سے سپورٹ کریں گے لیکن محبت تو ہوتی ہے سر محبت دو جگہ سے چلتی ہے ایسے 119 تک 119 تک
1: the earnestness is like so touching and hilarious this i think this was was this the match it was india pakistan in england right i think that you know people had traveled from the subcontinent there and then they were like you have got to be kidding me (laughs)
0: I mean, Pakistani, like Indian team, Indian fans are intense. But I think the Pakistan fans are way more like uh, passionate and like really, really react really wildly when their team loses. I mean, it's just really intense the way their cricketers um, are treated. I mean, they, they are showered with love, but like he was saying... The love has to be two way, eh? I guess. You know, I,
1: I, I kind of, I really do appreciate how they hold them to a high standard and aren't, and like they're just like take responsibility, <laughs> like and look at the impact that they've had. I mean, they got the team to change the diet officially. love <laughs> like- you Butters-
2: <laughs> <laughs> This is a grown man weeping in like, on camera about the diet. <laughs> Of the Pakistani cricket team. You know what, though? I was just thinking that maybe it's good that cricket left America because we don't have enough gun control in this country and we don't need this sort of rabid fanaticism about a sport.
1: You know, but, you know, I was actually thinking before, um, you know, when we were talking about, like, you know, gentlemen's game and, you know, elite sports and games. And it's interesting how, like baseball is such a like a populist kind of sport in in the states now right and it's it's um and it does inspire like crazy fandom and and people people are very i mean you know you can i are from boston and you know the red sox didn't win had, had had their losing streak for decades and when at least I think I was still in high school when You're they finally won the yeah. World Series. It, I mean, it's, it's very emotional there. So it, it is pretty intense. And I, I it's interesting how, you know, these things are, there are parallels.
0: Some of it, though, I think like Boston, especially with the uh, Red Sox and the Yankees, is that it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I should really know that my teams now, I think just a few days ago, on Boston media, Twitter, I saw this tweet about how Ben Affleck refused to wear the uh, Yankees hat in Gone Baby Gone. And David Fincher had to, I mean, essentially, I mean, I think it was more of a joke, but essentially production stopped until David Fincher. Uh, I don't remember what exactly happened, but like, yeah, he's, he's like, I'm not going to wear this Yankees hat because I'm never going to hear the end of it from my from my hometown people.
1: I, I also read that. Um, <laughs> and it, it's so interesting. They like, the, the agent had to renegotiate and in the end he wore a Mets uh, hat. <laughs> and, the, and the director was like, what? This is so unprofessional. And he's like, I, I'm sorry, but I just cannot wear a Yankees hat.
2: <laughs> if you go to Any Red Sox game, like they can be playing like the Toronto Blue Jays. One time in that game, there will be a chant of Yankees suck that rings throughout Fenway. Like people are like, you're not even playing the Yankees right now. And they're like, no, but we must remind you that we're the best and the Yankees suck. I don't know if the Yankees take it as seriously as Red Sox fans do, but Red Sox fans are diehard.
0: Coming back to cricket in the U.S., there's apparently there's also used to be cricket leagues in uh, Southern California in like the late 1800s, early 1900s. Really? Yeah. So leagues in San Diego, Los Angeles, um, Riverside.
2: But so in all of this like (laughs) cricket that's being played on in North America, were there any players from like South Asia that kind of like broke in?
0: I read about this one guy. It's a Parsi cricketer called Manakji Uh who was like a bowling sensation. So in the early 20th century, he played for the Los Angeles Wanderers. So he was a Parsi from Surat. Uh, so Parsi is Zoroastrian um, in India. They're called Parsi because they're from persia so he was a bowling sensation and he performed really well uh when he played for the southern california cricket clubs so he turned out for the los angeles wanderers he helped them win like he bowled really well and like basically was the scars of the batsmen in uh in southern california so i was reading this article on scroll by anu kumar uh, who has found some really interesting newspaper clippings about him i think like he had moved to uh, Los Angeles in the early 1900s. I think like he had an antique shop or like some art shop or something.
2: Yeah, he was like an art collector.
0: Yeah, so he essentially, he was the one of the breakout kind of South Asian cricketers in uh, in America at the time. And I think like he later moved on to London or something, mm-hmm. so...
2: But I think that was just professionally. Like, he kind of came to California to do... He's the son or the descendant of, like, a famous artist in India. He was part of this art collector scene, came to sell um, his art in Southern California, played cricket, and then moved on. Like, you know, it wasn't, like, a career for him by any means. But it's interesting that, like, he was so good that he made, like, news stories and stuff.
0: Yeah, I think, like, cricket in America had mostly been like kind of like an amateur sport. I think like there was also a Hollywood cricket club, which is basically like a bunch of British actors playing cricket.
2: So yeah, I mean, what's interesting about the whole cricket scene, in America, at least, is that it is really driven by British immigrants, like they come and kind of keep it going, like we see it in Philadelphia, we see it in California, like they're the ones who are keeping it alive. And then once like World War Two happened, or World War One rather happened, and this, uh, what Sarah was talking about with like the Imperial Cricket Club or whatever, it kind of dies out and then isn't really seen in the States till nowish i guess like now america with its influx of south asian immigrants is like starting to see more like homegrown cricket clubs and nothing on like the level of india or, or australia or anything but it's it you're seeing more of it happen again
1: i i read that atlantic story about um cricket in america and like uh and how it's so interesting that you know how these things keep shifting and how like Indian, the, like, rise of, like, South Asian, numbers of South Asian immigrants to the U.S. brings cricket back. And obviously, as you're saying, not in such a highly competitive uh, level, but but the numbers are there. And so people are, like, wherever there are, like, large groups um, of, you know, South Asian immigrants, they want to play cricket, and they're locally playing that. And so, like, on the West Coast, um, some of these groups have, like, cropped up. So that's yeah, that's super cool. And
2: like, who knows, right? Like in 10, 20 years, as like this migrant population continues to play it and it gets more attention, like you might see the U.S. as like an international force in this game because they certainly have the money to throw at sports. So
0: who knows? So Veda, what have you got for us today?
1: Hey, guys. Just coming, coming back with some with a food fact. Is it related to something depressing or no? Tell us straight up. It is, but <laughs> shocking. It's it's important to talk about. So, but it's it's very interesting. It's actually I'm going to talk about the beverage of coffee. Um, and so my thing for today is that Indians are now known for their tea drinking habits um, and bringing them. All around the world, but India has a distinct kind of coffee. Um, it's not very well known in the U.S., but it's called South Indian filter coffee or coffee. It has a lot of different names, um, and I'm going to talk today about the culture around it and kind of how how it came to be. Um, but interestingly and importantly, how it's served and um, you know, the culture around it also has a complicated and troubling history around caste and caste discrimination in India. So, you know, kind of how food intersects um, with these social um, issues as well. I want to start with just explaining a little bit about Filter Coffee. I'm sure all of us have had it. Saurabh, you're a South Indian.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so are you! She's hot.
1: Yeah. I'm gonna. Uh, so uh, basically, I mean, this is this is the way I I think I can explain it for those who don't know it in an American audience. So it's a kind of coffee that's made with coffee powder, boiled milk, and sugar. Um, it's sir, it's made, it's very hot and sweet, and it's basically made in some kind of you know, if you ha- if you will, French press. That's like a steel French press. Uh, kind of thing. So you basically leave the coffee powder and the water for a while. um, And then you add the boiling milk and sugar. Um, Does that sound right?
2: Yeah. So like, it's, you know, the thing that's really interesting about it is that the French press, for those of you who have used one, you let the coffee sit in water for like five minutes, right? And then you push the plunger down. This is a much more like, It's a a longer and think of it as like extreme slow drip coffee. So like you put a little bit of water in the coffee grounds and then it it's in this like metal French press, like Veda said, and then you let it drip for like 30 minutes. So this isn't like your quick cup of coffee in the morning. This is like there's an art to it. There's like a patience to it. It drips slowly. And then the decoction, the, like, the slow drip that's uh, boiled, you take a little bit of that and you put it in boiling milk. So it's actually way more um, milk than coffee, which we're not used to. But the coffee is so strong that you only need a little bit. And if you haven't had it, it is, it's like what coffee drinkers dream of. It's so good.
1: And it's served in a steel tumbler with another cup so like there's this like uh performative angle to like serving it because it's very hot and so you know servers will bring it and like pour it back and forth between the the cup uh to cool it down and people continue to do that while they're drinking it you know it that's it's like the 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 whole element of the heat and cooling it is part of how you drink it
2: and you know what's interesting to me is that, like, we don't really know how coffee got to India. There's like all these like myths around it, right? Like, there's one that in the 1600s, this Baba Budan, a Muslim pilgrim, brought seven seeds, like seven coffee beans with him, like hidden on his stomach or hidden in his beard, which like kind of gross, but like whatever. Um, And then became uh, cultivating this coffee in Karnataka, where both Veda and Sarb are from. But then there's also like, oh, some people are like, oh, no, the Portuguese... Um, brought it or took the coffee plants. But then there's a different story that like they actually took the coffee plants from Goa to Rio. Then there's also that like Brazilian coffee seeds came from the French in the 1700s. So like nobody actually, like with tea, I think we like Sarb laid such a nice narrative of how it got into India and became popular. Coffee is much older than tea in India and people don't really know like where it came from. It just like, South India is like an ideal climate for growing it. So it's been growing there for hundreds of years at this point.
1: And the origin story, as you said, like, you know, they have, they're so, they're multiple and this, but the, like the Muslim saint who, you know, one is, I found it a lot in my research. It's like a very popular one, but you know, what's so interesting about it is that like, you know, it's like the story is that in the 1600s, he went for the Hajj pilgrimage to Mecca and brought back seven coffee beans from Yemen on his way back and just like kind of how it's so super interesting like it echoes what Saurabh was talking about with like the smuggling of tea from China. Um, at the time it was illegal to transport coffee beans outside of the Arabian Peninsula so like <laughs> what's going on everybody's just smuggling coffee and tea from different places um, and yeah so you know it, again we come to British colonial rule. Um, the British you know, discovered this, like, South Indian, um, you know, culture of drinking coffee, and they basically expanded it and commercialized it. So a lot of, like, the coffee plantations that, you know, a lot of areas that are now known for their coffee plantations, it's kind of started there, like Gorg in Karnataka, different parts of uh, northern Kerala and other southern states, um, and and, you know, just became um, by the turn of the 20th century, um, you know, just became very popular, especially in Tamil Nadu, um, in as like the morning drink.
0: Also, a plantation in India does not have the same connotation that it does in the U.S.
2: Um, what I was going to say, as Veda mentioned, at the turn of the 20th century, coffee starts to replace, you know, the morning beverage. And before that, kind of going back to something that, you know, Veda has now made globally popular, if I may say, South Indians were drinking something called ganji or nirgaram, which was like this like nutritious um, porridge-like mix made with leftover rice and millets. And it was probably like way better for you than coffee, <laughs> but it doesn't have the zing, right? Like, so they would wake up and drink that. And I'm sure there's still some culture of that somewhere, but like, um it just, like, coffee just, like, took over, like, a storm once it got popular.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think my mom still sometimes drinks that. But mostly as, like, when your stomach is upset or something, like, it's mo- it's supposed to be really good for your...
2: That rice water? Yeah. Yeah, Vanita on TV, this mom also said that to me once.
0: But not, it's not, like, a morning beverage. It's not nearly as exciting as tea or coffee.
1: And when coffee was starting to become more popular in, like, these, as this morning drink in, in the middle class south indian homes it it was a bit controversial right yeah
2: yeah 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 it's so funny um it was like it kind of had some like you know cultural anxiety that went with people like starting to adopt it because they believed that it was like against conservative especially in Tamil society they believed it was like against conservative values it caused addiction ruined appetites threatened sleep patterns and perhaps worst of all it led to women turning toward Western vices.
0: Except for the last one, I think everything else is true.
2: Yeah. Oh, it does all no. Of <laughs> Not Western
1: vices. is arms, right? Everything from like coffee to chow men. No, Western vices. <laughs> women.
0: Western vices is pumpkin spice latte.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but it is true, right? Like I think. People probably
2: drank it and were like, I like this a little too much. And like, as I drink my morning coffee that I need now, correct.
0: Relevant. I need to get my second cup of coffee. So...
1: (laughs) So so basically with its popularity, they started these like coffee houses or they became common or they called them like coffee hotels. Like in India, sometimes a hotel is like ref- like a restaurant is referred to it as a hotel. Um, you know, people would, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the Chinese tea house kind of idea where people would gather and, and drink coffee and hang out. Um, but this kind of brings us, you know, to this element that I talked about with how it intersects with caste and and caste discrimination. So basically, in the 1920s, the coffee by the 1920s, coffee hotels in Tamil Nadu were common, and um, but they also discriminated along caste lines. So they had separate areas for serving um, Brahmins, upper caste communities, and um, there was a movement to reform this segregation. Um, and so while there was like a movement to uh, you know, just generally uh, fight against caste discrimination. Uh, the coffee hotels were also seen as like in, centrally as like the epitome of one of these like public issues. So um, it's very interesting, The this like very famous politician and social activist and social reformer, uh, Ivi Ramaswamy, he's uh, well known as Periyar, um, and he fought... Uh, Overall, um, you know, against caste discrimination and the domination of Brahmins in Tamil Nadu. But he also fought against um, discrimination in coffee hotels. And he said that he had once even been refused to be served. um, And you know, eventually, over a few decades, the practice of segregation um, and like having different signs for different casts in these hotels was eventually abolished. But it's it's pretty revealing. Um, a, a lot of these details um, is very interesting. I just want to call out this essay called "In Those Days There Was No Coffee" by A. R. Uh, um and he he writes about um, you know coffee as a marker of. The middle class, but also upper caste Brahmin communities. Even the way coffee is served, right?
2: Like traditional coffee is served has its roots in casteism, right? So like the cup and please, um, I'll put a picture of it on our Instagram. The steel tumbler that it's served in has a lip to it right? And that wasn't because it was like cool looking or aesthetics, though it is a very aesthetically pleasing tumbler. It was because coffee became popular, and it first became popular with the Tamilian Brahmins, who are the upper, upper caste in this community. And slowly, like most things do, it started to kind of spread throughout society. But the Tamilian Brahmins at that time were extremely conservative, and they wouldn't use the same utensils that were touched by a lower caste. Individual Like they wouldn't put them to their lips. So what this steel lip allowed them to do was pour the coffee into their mouth without touching it to their mouth, it would like lead to like a kind of a streamlined pour. So they would never actually put their uh, lips on the metal itself, because it may have been touched by the lips of a lower caste.
0: Really? Mm-hmm. I didn't know this. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. It's like super. And it also, like it happened in these restaurants as well, but it was also at home because uh, because the Million Brahmins were like known to have um, kind of keep this coffee in their home. When guests came to their house, it was an expectation that they would serve it. But if the guests were like a caste lower, that the Million Brahmins didn't want to seem rude by like giving them a ostensibly different serving utensil. So they would give them the same thing, but they would never put their mouth on it. And I was reading, um, it was that same article that Veda just mentioned, where the author writes about how her grandparents still drink coffee like that, and she'd never thought about it, but it comes from this like very
0: casteist viewpoint. I had no idea, to be honest.
1: Sorry, the reporting is um, by Nikita Venugopal in The Juggernaut and Ardi Menon in Food 52, um, and they both... You know they talk about uh, they refer to this um, culture and and the issues with caste and it's so this is something that's referred to as like purity pollution in in the caste system and and actually um, you know it, I didn't know this about the filter coffee design of the tumbler and if you think about it also a lot of these communities they don't even drink water by touching mm-hmm. the like. The utensil they like drink it from above, um, by like just pouring it in, and so it's this whole concept of you know keeping their like whatever they touch pure and not and and not touching something that may have been touched by a marginalized cast. So, very, very like troubling elements of caste discrimination that kind of make their way into, you know, these everyday elements. And food is actually, I mean, Grisha Shok mentioned it too. Food is a huge part of how caste operates. So, you can see it with the filter coffee.
2: And just to go back to something Veda mentioned earlier, that whole performative culture of like cooling it down to like a certain temperature, right? Like filter coffee is never spilled over to like piping hot, like um, drip coffee or, you know, espresso and stuff because you can't sip it, right? Like, or you're not supposed to sip it. You, it has to be at a temperature where if you pour it into your mouth, it doesn't like scald you.
1: So in the mid 1900s, this, uh, you know, thing was created called India Coffee House, um, which was just like this chain. And it introduced coffee to more groups and it introduced coffee to to North India as well and so it um, you know it's a very iconic kind of chain and it started to change the nature of some of like the exclusivity and connection with only certain groups, these coffee houses, you know, in, in Delhi, like, you know, where I live, and people will talk about, oh, like, you know, the old coffee house that's in, you know, one part in Kunaat Place and so on and so forth. But it's something that came about much later. And, and now um, it's become, you know, so popular that people, you know, who immigrants who moved to the US, you know, now, you know, they look for it. Um, or the diaspora looks for it outside, but people don't really associate coffee with India. And so it's kind of hard to find. You can find it sometimes in a South Indian restaurant. People don't
2: associate coffee with India, but India is the sixth largest coffee producer in the
0: world,
1: which is crazy. And India exports most of its coffee.
0: I guess I just had a bias growing up in Karnataka and so many of my relatives actually all of most of my relatives live in Bangalore. I interned there for two months or three months. There's like a million breakfast places around on every corner, on every street, where you'll get you'll get like an idli or like a medu vada or whatever and one cup of filter coffee, which is which is just amazing. Related to what you were saying, Veda, India Coffee House is also very has an important role to play in Indian geopolitics because it's like a it's it's it basically became it's a cooperative it's it's a cooperative run by workers right so it's it became like this place where like people met and ideas were formed and like a lot of prominent geopolitical movements kind of had their roots there and it also has some like communist associations because a lot of the branches are in Kerala and West Bengal which fun fact in India there are two states that are communist governments within a democracy.
1: Communist ideology parties that are <laughs> like running, running things. Or not so much in Bengal anymore, but they're still there.
2: Kind of going back to what Sarabh was saying is that like, it became so like traditional and common place to have these that like, there's currently in India, there's like a huge coffee house culture, but it's more of like the Western style of coffees, right? Like with the lattes and the drip coffees and whatever. And people have lost, um, at least the youth, people are lamenting that the youth don't like value this filter coffee so much, but the Indian uh, like coffee board, like the head honchos of Indian coffee are really trying to bring it back. And I think they're really trying to like It was interesting, Um, they're trying to appeal to kind of the hipster small batch, like takes a long time to make side of filter coffee to say like, come on, guys, don't be so like commercial and capitalist with your Starbucks, come back to this like homegrown coffee style. And they're really trying to push it in the West also, which I think is a great idea.
0: I think like it it doesn't help that filter coffee is usually associated with like dadis and nani and like your parents and your like, Grandmothers and grandfathers, they like to drink filter coffee. But sadly, like we're kind of just basically aping what the what Western countries are doing. One of the reasons uh, cafe culture became such like was such a huge hit is because like when cafe coffee day started out, uh, it was the place to hang out. And there's like in India, there's not that many places to hang out. And if you go to India now, most most youngsters, most people just hang out at malls and coffee shops.
2: But that's what they're doing. I think they're making it like a hipster thing.
1: One of the issues is about what we mentioned about how you make it. You know, it's like, because it, so the purists say that, you know, you can't use a very like, you can't make like a huge batch in one go because it ruins that like the taste of the fil- the uniqueness of the filter coffees, you're supposed to make it in more like small, use the smaller like French press looking filter, and so it's almost like making like individual cups and stuff like that, which has apparently become very popular uh, in certain parts of like the Bay Area and stuff, where people will wait for like 10, 15 minutes for their individual cup. But, you know, this takes, a, uh, this takes a while to be made. So that's another issue with like the production of it, but also being true to its distinctness.
0: I mean, as we know, being a purist about anything is kind of useless because everything has been evolved from something else. I do remember my time in the Bay Area, there was, I think it's Madras Cafe that has pretty good filter coffee. So another side fact that I... I know for sure, is that in coffee in India is a mix. It's 85% uh, coffee beans and 15% chicory beans, which is like a, it has a similar taste to coffee, but it's it doesn't have the caffeine, which purists, including one of my classmates, used to say, ugh, why are you drinking that coffee with chicory? Uh, you know who else puts chicory in their coffee? Café du Monde, the famous cafe in New Orleans.
2: But it's like controversial, right? Like the purest of filter coffee are like chicory is a no-no and you know, the hipsters are like, no, it's cool. Look at this aroma. It's also a caffeine-free substitute, which is like a cool way to uh, sell like the flavor and the experience without the buzz. And interestingly, the addition and substitution of this chicory into the coffee came um, around World War II, where there was like distribution issues with coffee. So people were unable to get as much as they wanted. So they started putting like little... Amounts of chicory in it to kind of fill, like make the coffee beans last longer. So, you know, necessity drives some cool inventions sometimes. (laughs) Going back to what Sarb was saying, I think the way to market this is really to like the hipsters around the world and make it like this is an individualized experience. It takes 20 minutes to make, it was made for you, you special little person. And like,
1: listen. I will pay top dollar for that. Like, I'm not making fun of these people. I am these people. You know, so it's really funny. Uh, My brother took me to uh, what's that uh, individual cup? Is it called Joe's?
0: Wait, I don't understand what like every coffee is individual cup. You're not drinking out of like a tap or anything.
1: There's a chain that makes like one cup at a time. And it's really it's become really popular in, in San Francisco. And I so they have it in D.C. So my brother was like, oh, you know, you have to, you wait in line. And he was like, oh, you know, it's, he explained the concept to me and they'll make like one cup for you and then you wait while they finish it and then they make the next one. You tell them exactly how you want it and stuff. And I was like, this is so wasteful. This is like a waste of time. Like, why would I do this? Whatever. So I go and I stand in line and they do it. And I'm like, I feel so special. Somebody making it for me, according to me. And then they ask you, like, so how is it? Should we make any adjustments? And I was like, it's totally worth it. Can I go back? Like, it's <laughs> so worth <I'm>
0: my <like>, $14. <laughs> I kind of disagree with the, like, the personal experience, especially when they ask you how it is. Because my mom is always like, oh... These guys are, like, so not confident of their skills. They have to be <laughs> validated for how it is. It's like, oh, good, I just want to be left in peace, yeah. Like, once I get my food or get my coffee or whatever in the us they always ask you how it is and like okay is there anything we can do like i will tell you if there's something if i want to do let just let leave me alone
1: everything is an experience we're such an individualistic society it can work you know it's like if you're like make people i i'm telling you the place to start this is san francisco <laughs> and be like takes you 20 minutes to get a cup of coffee. The line will be out the door of tech bros. Yeah. They'll be like, this coffee
2: was percolated for me. (laughs) And you're like, but grandmas have been doing it in Tamil for centuries, but sure, it was just for you. (laughs) That's so funny that your mom is like, why aren't they confident in their skills? That's such an Indian mom thing. She's like, I put this on the table. It's damn good. You eat it. (laughs)
1: the issue is with you and your taste buds, not with my food. But they are like that, right? They'll be like, like if I'm like, oh, you know, I think it needs more salt or oh, it's too spicy. They're like, oh, you haven't developed your taste well enough. (laughs) Like the issue is with you. Like (laughs) they're like, oh, they go to the US and they lose their taste buds. (laughs)
2: But you know what? That would sell also. Like America is so ridiculous sometimes. Like if you were like, here's this restaurant where they don't give a shit about you. Americans will line up at the door being like, what a cool experience. They don't give a shit about me.
0: Yeah, they should just make a restaurant where like an Indian mom or an Indian dad screams at you for wasting food.
1: <laughs> That's a really good idea. <laughs> My parents will volunteer. Yeah, My parents, parents will volunteer. Geetu's parents will work the other shift.
2: What do you mean you don't like it?
1: And they'll get a lesson. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. They'll pro- properly, they'll be like, also, do you know that you need to eat this much yogurt for your bones?
1: So there is a, um, you know, New Yorker who started this brand called Ministry of Copy, Um, after, like, the Tamilized way of saying coffee. Um, and um, And she, like, went to India and, like, tasted filter coffee and was like, why don't we have it here? And so... She, she's like regularly goes to India and is trying to like build this brand and take it across New York and other places.
0: This is my small gripe, gripe, small complaint against you, Indian Americans. You just come to India, like maybe for a summer vacation. You're like, oh my God, this is a great idea. And you just steal the idea and like become rich here. I
1: don't even think she's Indian American though.
2: She's she's (laughs) married to a South Indian. Like there's a chai company in um also run by like white people that's like sick of not being able to find a great masala chai and I think Padma Lakshmi had written
0: go to Ganesh canteen
1: underneath. <laughs> or the Indian any Indian store
0: Any Indian store any Indian restaurant will get you decent very decent chai
2: Yeah that vag bakri sachet is pretty decent masala chai. All
0: right, anything else on coffee? Or yeah, coffee hair.
1: Only that I want some. <laughs> oh, you miss Sharma's good pot. <laughs> Sorry, what did you say?
0: It's not coffee
1: <laughs> That's good.
2: Uh, nope, that's it for me except yeah, go try it if you haven't tried it. Like, preferably from, like, a sarvanabhavan or something.
1: I'm always scared when I'm, take like, cooling it myself. I'm going to spill it, though. Like, the people who actually know how to serve it, they're, like, experts. Like, they're, like, swoop, swoop, swoop.
2: We'll put a video of that up on uh, Instagram if you guys want to see something. It's very soothing to yeah. watch. It's, like, <laughs> coffee ASMR. So my fact... For this week is actually about the first celebrity chef in America whose name was J. Ranji Smile, who claimed to be a prince. Um, he claimed to be Prince Ranjit of Balochistan, who was an Indian who came and kind of swept through New York and was this like culinary mastermind, apparently, and got like all this press. Um, For about like 10, 20 years before he had to leave the country. So this is like such an interesting story, you guys. This guy, J. Renji Smile, is... um an Indian who claims to be a prince. He's like lauded for being like so handsome. And he like wore these like silk robes and turbans and like curled his mustache. And he originally started out at the Hotel Cecile and the Savoy in London. And because he got like so many glowing reviews, this guy, Louis Sherry, who owned this restaurant called Sherry's in New York City, brought him to Uh, New York. He had like the lady swooning. Harper's Bazaar was doing a piece on him. Variety was doing a piece on him. And he really brought like, good Indian food to America. Like he's one of the first people to do it. When is this? So he comes to America in 1889. Wow, it's early. Yeah, 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 it's super super early. So it's really interesting actually. He came to America right when Americans were ready to be trying kind of different foods. So in around the 1840s, America starts having access to like Indian spices. And like Sarb was mentioning, Brits are coming in to America. So with them, they're bringing like the idea of Indian spices and the idea of Indian food because they have exposure because of colonialism, right? But what Americans are getting is kind of like third hand Indian food, right? So like the Indian told the British, the British told the Americans. So it's not like very good. Like Indian recipes start showing up in cookbooks in the 1840s and stuff. So Americans are kind of like interested in the flavors and stuff. But no one's like done it that well. I read this um, one description of like one of the reasons J. Runji Smile got super popular was because his rice was like single grains, right? They Like they described it as like a snowy mound of single grains. So apparently <laughs> till that point, Americans had been making rice and stirring it the whole time. So it would oh, release no. the starch <laughs> and be like clumpy and like starchy so like when he showed them like look this is what rice can be like they were like show us all your tricks how can you be cooking rice wrong all this time (laughs) i think they were cooking it like pasta like they were stirring it i had a roommate that did that and i had to be like good lord please stop stirring the rice
0: so this is interesting uh also because i've been reading this book about uh the kind of like the unknown histories uh Of South Asians, uh, usually the narratives are that uh, some of the first South Asians that came to the US were the ones that came to as mill workers and like the ones that went uh, to the West Coast, right? So through Vancouver, they came to Seattle and like Washington. But there was actually a good two or three decades before that, there was an influx of Peddlers of uh, like handicrafts and silk and silk goods uh, and like kind of artisan stuff from Bengal. Uh, now that part is Bangladesh, but at the time it was Bengal. So these people came to America in the 18 late 1880s, and like they were selling goods to uh, to americans at the time because it was kind of like cool to have like quote-unquote oriental stuff in your uh in your house because it was like it meant that you are worldly you are more well-read you're more like exposed to the world culture so they, the americans at the time were kind of and this is this culture is like diffused from england because they were trying to be more european uh and like more like global and this is how this was this was one of the their ways to kind of decorate their house with these worldly handicrafts.
2: Yeah, and so this guy, um, J. Runji Smile, we actually don't actually even really know what his real name was because it's not like Joseph Runji Smile is not the name of any prince in India. But we actually don't really know his um much about his parentage. So there's this Really great historian, Sarah Lohman, who's written a lot about him. And she says that he was probably born into a Muslim family in Karachi. And his original last name was probably Ismaili. But the way if you track it through like articles written about him in 1901 in the Boston Daily Globe which I think went on to be the Boston Globe, they wrote that his father was a merchant. In 1904, the Philadelphia Inquirer wrote that his father once reigned in Marochi, India. In 1907, the Washington Post identified him as the fifth son of the late Amir of Balochistan. In 1910, the Detroit Free Press said his father's name was Haji and his mother was Princess Zoya. And then in 1912, the New York Herald Tribune repeated this claim and said that he was the son of Princess Zoya Collect. And Amir Haji Nar—I don't even know how to say this—Narbeboki, Narbeboki, of Balochistan in British East India, and there's no actual record of these people in Balochistan, so he, it's not like he. We're pretty sure he's not the act, like he's not the actual son of any royalty. He's just a guy who came to America and wanted to make it. And he knew what he was doing, right? Like he was a performer more than anything else. Like he was a good cook, but he like put up this whole act of like, my food is like comes from this exotic land. And if your women will eat it, they'll have lustrous hair and glowing eyes. And like, he's not only the original celebrity chef, but he's also like kind of the original like wellness hack, right? Like he was trying to sell his like spices. It's like having curative effects and stuff. So he's like doing all this stuff. This 1919 profile of him in Variety has this like crazy story of his life before he got to the West. He says he's a he's a member of the royal family in Punjab, in the Pakistan part of Punjab. And he left his home when he was a boy. He was wandering in the hills. He lo- he got lost. He was picked up by bandits who held him for a ransom of approximately $100,000 in American money when they learned who he was. These bandits eventually left him in the mountains, and he wandered the jungle in those years and even forgot his real name until an English colonel picked him up when he was 16 and took him to Burma and then eventually to England. And because Americans and the media like were so in love with this like orientalism
1: and like exoticizing the east they just bought all of it they were like sure this makes sense all i can tell from this the only thing we know about his origin story is that he is from what is now modern day pakistan like the- <laughs> Originally, and this is so pre pre partition, and that is where his family is from. And then he made his way somehow to the UK, and then America.
0: So I think like a lot the pathway for a lot of people coming here during those times was by being workers on ships. And if you read Vivek Bolt's Bengali Harlem. Uh, J. Ranji Smile actually makes a brief appearance in it. Bengali Harlem talks about how so many South Asians ended up becoming workers on uh, British ships, and once they uh, once they got to London uh, from London, they would get another job as a like a ship worker on a ship going to America. And once they would come to America, they would jump ship basically because the conditions uh, on British ships was, were really bad. They were paid like fraction of the salary that a white worker white ship worker would make so they would jump ship and like kind of make a life here and some of the first indian like restaurants in new york at least were by these immigrants who like basically opened up restaurants and like helped helped kind of popularize curry
2: so jay Renji's mouth well, he was brought over by the chef of this restaurant, Sherry, Lewis Sherry, but he was, for all intents and purposes, undocumented. And kind of what Sarb was just saying, he gets into trouble in 1901, like some serious trouble, because he goes to London and kind of under this like moniker of being a prince and this and that, he recruits like 26 Indian laborers and supposedly promises them jobs in America, which is illegal. You can't just like promise someone a job and just like bring them with you. So he basically brings, like, illegally brings these workers into the country under the guise of, like, their, his entourage, because he's a prince, but really he was going to use them in his, like, restaurants and stuff. So he gets into legal trouble All of his workers are deported. And that's when like the press kind of turns a little like nasty towards him. And then so at this time, what happens is that Sherry, the restaurant is looking at about $26,000 in damages because of what he did. So they distance themselves from him and from Runji himself, who doesn't get deported. The The judge is like, okay, you can stay, but these guys have to go. So that's when Runji Smile starts doing these, like, tours of America, teaching, like, elite American housewives how to cook curry and stuff. So he, like, travels all throughout America and um, does cooking demonstrations in department stores and hotels. And that's when all these, like, pieces are written about him and his, like, story kind of spreads far and wide.
1: He kind of does this, like, pop-up thing before pop-up is, like, a trend. I mean... You
2: you have to give it to this man for his, like, hustle, right? Like, at, anytime anything kind of doesn't go in his favor, he, like, finds a different route to, like, stay in the country to, like, um, you know, keep his, like, aura going. Vivek Bald, who um, Sarb mentions, also talks a little bit about how this was, like, You know, it wasn't that Americans were like fascinated by him and kind of venerated him or like put him up on a pedestal. He was like kind of a joke. Like he was kind of an inside joke where he was the clown and they were watching him do these things and his food was good. But it wasn't like they respected him. There's definitely like a racist um, undertone to the way they talk about him. They're always talking about his like golden brown skin and his like oily mustache and whatever. And this is a time we like, we remember from when we talked about Punjabis in the California Valley, the um, sentiment towards Indian laborers and Indian immigrants in America is really turning. So like, they kind of hate him. They kind of use him for their entertainment. It's why they're always like watching him to like report on him because he's a source of he's like reality TV, essentially.
1: And the laws, the immigration laws were. In
0: 1917, uh, right? That's when the Immigration Act was changed and basically excluded anybody coming from Asia.
2: So in 1904, Ranji Smile applies for citizenship and doesn't get it because you had to prove that you were white. And maybe we can get into that in a future episode. There were a couple of people who tried to prove that they were Caucasian of Indian descent, but he's um, he is denied. And he's just like, he wants to stay. I think like life here is better than life was for him in colonial India to the point where he fills out a draft card for World War One. He doesn't go to war, but he's just like, All right, I'll do whatever I got to do to stay in this country.
1: So once he gets denied and he doesn't go to war, where does he end up? He's just on this tour of America. And during this tour, he's linked
2: with a number of white women right? Like he's engaged to a couple of them. In 1912, he marries Violet Ethel Rochlitz, who's this up and coming Broadway performer. Um, And he's 30 at the time, she's 20. In 1918, he gets married again to May Walter, who a few months later slaps him with a warrant for disorderly conduct. And then they're kind of estranged. um, And then he marries again. So he kind of, kind of gets this reputation as like a Casanova you know there's always kind of questions around his identity there's questions around his immigration status so like he's definitely in the cultural lexicon but it's hard to tell if it's like it's actually not hard to tell it isn't 100% positive right like there is this like exoticism and um, a little bit of a vilification of him towards the end
1: And he eventually, he moves back to England, right? He
2: actually moves back to India. As we head into the 1920s, I think like, you know, like we do with anything... People get sick of him. They're not really that interested in him anymore. As Sarb's talking about, Indian restaurants are popping up, like other Indian restaurants are popping up. These spices and recipes are getting more common. And in the July of 1929, the Times of India lists him as a passenger due to arrive in Bombay. And then there's really no news of him till the spring of 1937, where there's a notice in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, which says that May Walter is requesting an annulment of their marriage. And then we just never hear from him again. You know, he...
1: Mae Walters is like, haven't heard from you in a while, so I'm just uh, requesting an annulment. Like, yeetu <laughs> dedo." <laughs> May Walters is like, "Unfall." <laughs> and yeah,
2: we just like, nobody knows what happened to him, really. And there was kind of, towards the end of his career, he was like really labeled as a con man. But what Sarah Lohman and Vivek Bald make kind of clear is that you don't actually know like all the xenophobic, racist things that he was having to deal with on a day-to-day basis. So like his actions were probably more of a survival technique, right? Like I think he thought like, maybe if I marry a white woman, people will accept me. You know, like I don't know what happened between him and May Walters, but it doesn't sound like he loved her. He
1: might've just like been like, she's my ticket to stay. Are all these people like Kuldeeb Bry and uh now Ranji Smile are they gonna like emerge and haunt us haunt this podcast and be like (laughs) hey because we are like and we don't know where they ended up and the last record we have is xyz (laughs) (laughs) please write to us if you would know anything about what happened to these people
2: so I know Vivek Bald is working on a book about him and he has said several times he's like it's very hard to trace down a guy whose real name you don't know (laughs) right like you only have this persona and he's only really in the u.s for like two decades in which he's very popular but like you can only base it on those like pieces written about him
1: immigration woes killing so many people's dreams it's been happening for a hundred years yeah america get it together dude Any other
2: questions about Jay Renji Smell, Guys, I just think he's so cool. I want to see a movie about this guy.
1: I just want to see this guy making rice, showing the white housewives how to make rice. But this is like a thing you hear from
2: people, right? They're like, my rice never turns out well. And that's why I was like, listen to the Krisha Shroke episode. He like breaks it down for you. But I, I don't
1: understand, right? It's the easiest thing. You just put it in and add some water and boil it. Like, that's it.
0: <laughs> I mean, use the index finger trick and you'll be fine.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's all I do. Or I, like, eyeball the ind- index finger. No, but, like, even if you have excess water, just
2: strain it at the end, right? Like, that's still better than stirring it throughout till it's clumpy. Like, ew. Why would you eat that? Or
1: washing it.
0: (laughs) I mean, very, very easy way to cook rice. Wash it three times until the water runs clear. Throw in the rice in the whatever container. Doesn't matter what container. If you're making one cup of rice, just put one cup in. Put in water and like stick your index finger in till it touches the surface of the rice and put in water until the first first. line first line whatever this is called of on your index finger and that's it
1: yeah and i meant washing it like after it's cooked yeah yeah, after it's cooked like dump out the extra water if you have any hopefully you don't if you've followed the eight finger trick Uh, but don't turn the faucet on and (laughs) wash it but there's like
2: paragraphs in these articles originally when he gets here talking about his snowy mounds of
1: rice. I would read a book that was titled J. Renji smiled the man who taught America how to cook rice. That's good guys. Make a movie about this guy cast like, Riz Ahmed to play him. I kind of think it's really interesting how he's just like, these are the Orientalist tropes that were like available. And he's like, I'm going to spin them, turn them and like, just market it back to you. (laughs) Like He was like, I'm an exotic prince. When one of the research articles, like, from the articles of the time, like, they quoted, like, a customer talking about the experience of being served by him. And they're, like, you know, when you open the menu and, like, read the menu of the Indian food, like, you know, you have trepidation and fear. But then Jay Runji smile, like, he comes out and the food is all good. And I'm, like, why do you have trepidation and fear? Relax. It's a menu. (laughs) Like. (laughs) It's just a menu. It's a menu. So you don't know a word. Relax. Like.
2: (laughs) But okay, last thought is that we actually don't know what he cooked, right? Like he called, like, there was like Bombay duck and like Madras curry. But Bombay duck in India is a fish.
0: Bombay duck is a fish period.
2: Yeah, no, no, no. Here, they think it was a curry duck. Like he called something Bombay duck. Like Beijing duck. Yeah, like that was a curry duck. Like Peking duck. But we don't actually know what he cooked. And yesterday I was just thinking, I was like, I wonder if it was just like, mediocre Indian food. But like, because it's like flavors you haven't seen before, you're like, look at the saffron as it floats in the curry of the Bombay duck. And I was like, good for you, Ranji. You knew how to make rice. You knew how to put like a little bit of turmeric, a little bit of chili powder. Basically, (laughs)
1: fakrata.
2: But also the best thing, he's like quoted as saying, they were like, what are Americans doing wrong? (laughs) He was like, you just boil everything. You gotta like, simmer things you know like you can't just boil shit <laughs> so i was like i don't know if he knew how to cook or he was just like cooking things slowly so they had flavor
0: it's really interesting mayuk Sen's article also talks a lot about this so you should you all know, we link to the, all of these pieces and it's it's actually fascinating that was it that was episode number nine of three desi things three desi things is sorabdata Gitika kallu and veda shastri
2: uh, you can find us
1: on Instagram at 3 things and on Twitter at 3 things. And email us if you have any ideas or any feedback at 3 things at gmail.com and check out our website, 3 com.
2: Guys, check us out on Instagram. We post things about the um, episodes for sure, but we're trying to post more, like, archival photos and, like, cool things that we – don't have time to cover on the episode so like there's some interesting pictures and little facts about india
0: yeah and on our website three they we also obviously post all of the links to our research we post some additional bonus stuff that couldn't make it to the episode and also if you could please leave a review on apple uh, it would really help others find our show and in general if you like it please let us know Uh, We are obviously also on Spotify, Google, Stitcher. Apple. Our podcast is available on all platforms. So please, please subscribe, leave a review, leave a rating. It would be awesome if you do that. And thank you to everybody who has already left a rating or review. We appreciate you. It really makes a difference. And we will see you in two weeks.
2: I just want to say we made fun of those guys who ask you how the food is and to like validate them. But we need the validation. Please give us validation.
1: We need it. We have been spoiled rotten and now we are insecure and need the validation. (laughs) Thanks for listening.